studying the book of Acts together and come now to chapter 14. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there's some men coming up the aisles right now and they'd like to take care of that for you and put a Bible in your hand if you just wave and get their attention. It'll be marked to our passage and if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 14. Now it happened in Iconium that they, that is Paul and Barnabas, went together to the synagogue of the Jews. So spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Gentiles, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. And therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaona to the surrounding uh, region, and they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. And this man heard Paul speaking, and Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had the faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying the, in the uh, Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men, and Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes." But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes, ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with good food and uh, gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitude uh, from sacrificing to them. And then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And so so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after that, they passed through Pisidia, and then they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which uh, they had uh, completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that the Lord had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And... We thank you here and as a group to be able to read a full chapter of it in your presence today and with the realization that it is going to be the one thing along with the eternal souls of each of our lives and every man and woman in human history, the one thing that will outlive the heavens and the earth. 
We thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for what you want to speak to us through it today. And we pray that you give us ears to hear what your spirit, who we have so warmly welcomed into this place, Lord, would desire to speak to each one of us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this chapter, we have the record of the conclusion of Paul's first missionary journey accompanied by Barnabas and their return then to Antioch of Syria, which was their ascending church. Paul and Barnabas, as we come to chapter 14, have just been expelled from Antioch of Pisidia. That was a different Antioch located in what we know as Turkey today. It was called Asia in those days. And because of the envy of some of the religious Jews at the number of the Jews and Gentiles who had been deeply impacted by the gospel, the offer of salvation by God to sinful man to receive the forgiveness of sins, the response was so great among the Jews and the Gentiles in that city that it provoked and envy in their hearts against Paul and against uh, Barnabas. If you don't think that there's competition or these kind of things within religious circles, then, uh, well, take my word for it, there is. And, uh, and, and they felt the sting of it. And uh, here these kind of Johnny-come-latelys come in with this new message, and they've got the entire city coming uh, forward to hear their message, and they've been struggling to fill that, uh, you know, synagogue probably uh, for years. And so they began this campaign of slander and lies against Paul and uh, Barnabas, and, uh, and, and ultimately resulted in them being expelled from the city. They then came uh, to the city of Iconium, where we pick it up this morning, and we're told that a great multitude, that's a lot of people, both of Jews and Gentiles, they believed in the gospel, and as a result of Paul's preaching and Barnabas's preaching, again, the forgiveness of sins found in Christ, this message hit fertile soil. It is a f wonderful message to anyone who is conscious of our sin and uh, the desire for uh, forgiveness. And again, in the same scene of great fruit, uh, these unbelieving Jews again uh, threatened by all of this. They stirred up the Gentiles of the city. It's an interesting phrase that's used in the passage that they poisoned the minds of these Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. And it's an interesting to think about how careful we are to protect uh, our physical body from being poisoned in life. Entire agencies are developed in order to protect us uh, from the danger of that, and yet how uh, flippant or uncaring we are about the potential of a mind being poisoned. And there's nothing that so poisons the mind as much as slander and lies, and that's what they used against Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas responded to all of this, we're told, by staying there in the city of Iconium for a long time. They realized this is a very hostile environment for new Christians. We don't want to abandon them. We want to build them up in the faith. So they spent a long time there. And then the Lord, recognizing the need as well, he was confirming the teaching of Paul and Barnabas through signs and wonders and uh, that were being accomplished through his messengers. And ultimately, though, even though they were there for quite a while, a violent attempt was made by the Jews and the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. And the intent was with, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, political authority within the city of Iconium uh, to have them stoned. Now, you didn't stone people in those days as a means of punishment. That wasn't a halfway measure that people engaged in. When you stone someone, the intent was to kill them. And that was the intent of these Jews and Gentiles within Iconium was to bring a complete and final end uh, to the ministry of Paul and Barnabas by stoning. They became aware of this plot. They fled into the cities of Lystra and 
uh, to Derby, and it wasn't cowardice on their part in doing that. In fact, it was wisdom on their part and completely in line with what uh, Jesus' instruction to us and to them when he declared, but when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. Just move to the next group that will be willing to listen to what you have to say. In verse 7, they come then into, formerly into the city of Lystra. And there's no mention of a synagogue service. There's no mention of them going to the Jews. This is a, a predominantly Gentile uh, city. And so Paul is somehow preaching the gospel in that city. And so maybe in some kind of an open-air setting or whatever it might be, but he is, it's certainly a non-religious environment, and, he's, and as he's preaching God's Word, he notices that there's a crippled man who is in the audience, and he hasn't become crippled lately. He has been crippled from his mother's womb. And as Paul is preaching, and sometimes it's an interesting thing if you've ever preached or you've ever uh, taught the Bible or that kind of thing. Uh, there's the thing that you're saying that has the, you know, the majority of your focus, but there's a lot of things going on in your mind all at the same time, hopefully not overwhelming what it is that you're trying to focus on. But you're noticing the audience. You're noticing a lot of things that are going on. A lot of thoughts are going uh, on in your mind. And he sees this man who's crippled, and he realizes, probably from a spiritual gift known as a word of knowledge, he realizes this man is, believes what I'm saying, and he has the faith uh, to be healed. And, uh, and realizes that this man, as he's listening to Paul's preaching, that this man in the privacy of his own heart begins to believe that, hey, this God that they're preaching about could heal me of my uh, physical condition. And so when Paul recognized that, he then called on the man to stand to his feet, and this man stood to his feet, and he began to leap, and he began to walk, and he had received what the Bible calls as a, a gift of healing into his life. Now, listen, when something like that happens, oh, we've got, you know, the internet, we've got YouTube, we've got uh, these telephones and iPads, and we can be so connected to so much overwhelming input that sometimes it's hard for us to realize the impact. I don't know. I don't know that a miracle of God could almost compete with the loudness of the technology today. I know that it could, but you get the idea of what I'm saying. In those days, there was it's a much quieter situation a simpler situation, and suddenly this man that everybody knows in the city and knows him to be a cripple from his mother's womb is leaping and walking, and it's a, a result of the God that this man is preaching about. And so the news immediately spreads, as you might expect, throughout the entire uh, city, and uh, the people began to conclude that the gods had come down to them in the likeness of men. And they begin to speak in Lycaonian uh, dialect. It was a local dialect. They begin to speak to one another in that dialect. Paul and Barnabas, they know Greek, they know other languages, uh, Aramaic and so forth, Hebrew, but they didn't know this language. They just know there's a tremendous excitement that is going on as a result of this healing these people are communicating uh, among one another, and so it's kind of lost upon them, and, and they're trying to figure out exactly what it is that's happening here. It took them some time to do that, but the people uh, deemed Barnabas to be the incarnation of Zeus, and Zeus was, in Greek mythology and Roman mythology, uh, the uh, father of the gods. And they, so uh, it tells us that probably Barnabas was larger than Paul and uh, probably statuesque in some way in terms of his presence, and they concluded Paul to be the incarnation of Hermes, who was the messenger of the gods because he was the chief speaker of the two. And upon hearing the news that both Zeus and Hermes have showed up into town, uh, the priest at the temple of Zeus, was, which was at the, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, you know, gates of the city, a, a preeminent area of the city, he immediately grabs a garland. I mean, this is the God he's been waiting for, and here he is in the city, grabs an oxen, grabs the garlands with the intent of now coming 
uh, to this incarnation of Zeus and offering a sacrifice there of this oxen to, uh, to Paul. And so word came to him, hey, listen, your God has just showed up in town. You better get down here. And he did uh, very, very quickly. Now, there's a backstory to all of this that's, uh, I think, significant for understanding uh, what was happening here. There's a, the legend that was told by over the, a, a Roman poet how that in the past, uh, among the Lycaonian people and the people of Pergia there, that region of Turkey, that there was a time when Zeus and Hermes or Mercury had uh, come to that region, uh, their region, and they were disguised as mortal men. And they went to a thousand different homes in the region and sought hospitality among the people and received no hospitality from anyone. And then they came to the home of a man by the name of Philemon and his wife Bacchus. And, uh, and having been uh, denied this hospitality by others, they brought them into being poor, into the humility of their home, and they fed them out of their poverty. And later the gods then destroyed all of the homes that had denied them hospitality and did so by means of a flood and then spared Philemon and Bacchus and then transformed their shack uh, into a marble-pillared, gold-roofed temple, and they became the priests there and lived happily ever after. All right, it's mythology. That, but that's, that's what they were thinking, and that's what they were believing. So they were thinking in their minds, wow, we blew it before, and it didn't end very well for us, so we better roll out the red carpet if Zeus and, and uh, Hermes have showed up uh, once again. They were going to make that mistake a second time. Now, at some point in all of this, Paul and Barnabas, they figured out what was happening, and uh, they brought all of it to a halt, and they could scarcely do so. I mean, they began to tear their clothes, and, you know, we say, oh, I tore my clothes. Tearing your clothes in the ancient world was an expression of, the ultimate expression of, of uh, deep grief. It, it meant that your heart was being torn. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I have more than one change of clothes in my closet at home. Uh, all of us do. In those days, to have a second uh, change of clothes was to be uh, significant and well off. So you didn't just tear your clothes uh, any old time. They tore their clothes as an expression of their grief, and uh, they began to call on the multitude to turn from these pagan gods and turn to the true and the living God, the God of the Bible who had created all things and so forth. And as they preached these things, they scarcely, the passage says, they barely stopped these people from worshiping them and offering the sacrifice as they had intended to do. And, uh, and so this was, uh, you know, the... Uh, the plight that they had kind of faced. Now, sometimes, sometime after all of this, the troublesome Jews that had been seeking their death, they came from Antioch of Pisidia, and they then came from Iconium, uh, cities that they had been to before, and they came now to Lystra to undermine the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, and they then succeeded in stirring up this very superstitious town and and uh, people sufficiently to get them to stone Paul. And they, uh, they had been unsuccessful in Iconium because Paul and Barnabas had left. In Lystra, they succeeded in convincing them now, let's stone these men to death. And we're told in verse 19, which is precisely what they did then uh, to Paul, and uh, they were convinced of his death and uh, significantly enough convinced of his death that they dragged his body outside of the city and they just left it there in a heap like a corpse outside the city. Now, stoning was an awful, awful death. I mean, you just got to stop and think about it in your mind a little bit, even if you don't like those things. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible uh, way to die. And so they stone him uh, and uh, they drag Paul's body out of town just like a rag doll and they lay him out there. That's the Apostle Paul. That's our brother. That's our brother in the faith. And I think to myself, where did, they, where did they find him in the city to do it? Normally you would take somebody outside of the city and stone them to death. But their rage and and their envy was so great. This is a hundred mile 
envy. That's how far they traveled on foot to accomplish this. And uh, so they found him in the city, stoned him there, defiling their city, so to speak, and, and, uh, and then uh, dragged him outside. Now, did they find him quietly eating breakfast or lunch, or did they find him uh, speaking openly in the city as he had done with a man who had, uh, was lame and was healed? Did they find him quietly instructing people in the privacy of someone's home or the courtyard of someone's home? I think to myself, did they surprise him? I mean, what did he think when he saw this crowd? So many of them with so many great stones in their hands. And you think about, what did the first stone feel like? When did he lose consciousness in the whole process? And when that murderous crowd had left, the disciples, as Paul's body outside of the city, they gathered around it, they thought he was dead, and they begin to assess the damage to his body, and they begin to mourn, and then Paul moved. And then he moved a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more. And finally he stood up, and he ran for his life to the next city. That's not what he did. He stood up, and he turned around, and he walked right back into that city. And then he left it the next day on his own terms for Derby. You talk about a fickle crowd. This is about the greatest picture of fickleness in all of the Bible. David dealt with fickleness. Jesus certainly dealt with fickleness. This is astonishing, though. Here, uh, you know, and in, in, in some people are like this, not all of them, thankfully. But here in this city of Lystra, one day, they are declaring you to be God and ready now to worship you. And the next day, they try to stone you to death. And those are the highs and the lows of Christian ministry yet today. Paul then made his way to Derby, verse 21, with Barnabas. And many, many people became Christians there in that city. And after which they then returned to uh, the scenes of all of this a hardship that they had gone through. I would have caught a boat, you know, maybe to back to Antioch the long way, you know, around all of the cities that we've been through. Let's not go back to any of those places. But they'd left a church in each of those cities. They'd left Christians in each one of those cities against all odds. And so they went back to these scenes of so much of their trouble, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch of Pisidia, before then returning home to their sending church, which was Antioch in, in, uh, in Syria. And upon getting home to that ascending church, they gave them a report of all that God had been, been doing during their missionary journey. This missionary journey had covered a period of about one uh, to two years. And, uh, and as, as they uh, came to each of these churches on their way home, they had a simple message that they wanted to deliver to them, a reason that they went back to all of these cities they went back, we're told, in verse uh, 20, uh, 22 there, that they went back for the purpose of strengthening them, to encourage them to continue in the faith, and then to remind them of something significant, that we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of heaven. All of chapter 14, and in fact, all of chapter 13 as well, because they represent the narrative concerning the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey, all of that, chapters 13 and 14, merely set the stage in my mind for the presentation of that great truth that is found in verse 22. And I want you to look at it and notice it. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now, this teaching of Paul is an important one for us as Christians to take note of because today, at best, it's generally neglected as a subject, and at worst, 
it is even openly contradicted by some Bible teachers, and especially on television, where the teachers give the impression that if we have enough faith, we'll always be healthy, we'll always be wealthy, we'll always be prospered, that somehow we will have kind of a favored status as Christians uh, in this world, a favored status kind of life, if we just have enough faith and if we just think positively enough about things in life, we'll hardly have a problem at all. Well, it's a fun message to hear, I'll grant you that, uh, because I like encouragement. I like to believe the message, um, but life has been different for me than uh, what they have uh, experienced. So we need the encouragement, and we like to hear it. But the problem is, is it's a setup for absolute disillusionment at some point in my Christian life. Because if I believe that about the Christian life, I am bringing an expectation into my Christian life that is a false expectation. The truth about the Christian life is what Paul declares here. And he declares, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And if I don't understand that, then my Christian life is, when my Christian life becomes then filled with difficulty, I will begin to think that I am the odd duck and that I'm all alone in my suffering, that no other Christian suffers the way uh, that I do. Nobody else experiences the kind of tribulation that I have, uh, that I experience, when in fact the Bible says that no temptation has come to me except that it's common uh, to man. And so I begin to believe these things. I begin to feel very alone in times of tribulation and difficulty, like, you know, this, is, this kind of thing is only, uh, you know, happening to me, which then makes everything worse. Or then I begin to tempt, uh, be tempted to doubt the love of God and the compassion of God for me. That's always a disaster. Or I'll begin to spin out into a, a whole whirlwind of of, of self-pity. Fact of the matter is that life in this world, even for the Christian, can be very, very hard. I'm reminded of a bumper sticker that I read years ago. I remember the first time I read it, and the bumper sticker read this. Life is hard, and then you die. And isn't that perky? You're not going to fill a 7,000 feet foot, I mean, a person capacity auditorium preaching that. Life is hard, and then uh, you die. You wonder about that. You think, why make a bumper sticker of it? Why does it resonate with enough people to make a bumper sticker out of it? Except that it's in large part true. An author, you trust an author to expand on anything, right? An author enlarging on this saying, he enlarged it in this way, life is hard, and then you die. And then they throw dirt on your face, and then the worms eat you, uh, but be grateful that it happens in that order. <laughs> so, the Old Testament, Eliphaz, one of Job's comforters, he put it this way. He said, yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. But Jesus himself spoke of the truth of the difficulty of life in this world, not just for the non-Christian, but for the Christian as well, when he declared to us as Christians, these things I've spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And there was that important encouragement that he and he alone could add to the bumper sticker in his word. Now, I want to just briefly break down this sentence from uh, verse uh, 22. We must, through uh, many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. I want you to notice that word, we, because it's a very significant word. In speaking to these various congregations, as Paul does here, uh, that Paul, God had used Paul to birth into existence, he wanted every single Christian in those congregations, right into the room even here today, to know 
that tribulation is not exclusively the portion of the missionary or the elder or the pastor or the evangelist. Paul declared to them, we, speaking to every member of that congregation, because it's true not just of him and Barnabas, but true of every single Christian. And there's a tendency for us to think of that, that yes, all right, well, that's the portion of missionaries. I'm never going to be a missionary, so I'm thankful, you know, that this doesn't have any application to me. But that's not the truth about it. This is the truth about every single Christian. You notice that word must. In other words, this tribulation is something that isn't optional. I wish it were optional, but I would never grow in any kind of godly character at all because I'd opt out of it every single time I could. But it isn't optional. In fact, Paul wrote to Timothy later in his life, and he declared, Yea, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He wrote it to uh, Timothy, and he wrote it in the context of speaking to Timothy about the difficulty that he had gone through in life. It's interesting to realize that Timothy was from the city of Lystra. He had either probably seen the stoning, or he was a member of the group of Christians that stood over Paul's body and lamented his apparent death, and then saw him rise and go back into the city. And he said to Timothy, who was being moved by the difficulty of his life and his circumstances as a Christian, reminded him, yea, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Then notice that word tribulations. It speaks about hardships. It's the Greek word uh, philipsis. And philipsis in the Greek, it speaks of a crushing trouble. Uh, and it speaks of a trouble that uh, comes upon our lives, our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength in a way uh, that feels like a great weight has been placed upon our chest. It was used for the crushing of grapes until uh, juice came forth. In ancient times, it was also used of a particular means of punishment or interrogation that was common where they would lay a man on the ground They would put a great wooden uh, board or something upon his chest, and then upon that board, they would put a gigantic rock upon, uh, upon the board that was upon his chest, a great boulder. And as the subject would then exhale the air out of his lungs, he wouldn't have the ability I'm I'm having a panic attack right now thinking about it. I feel like I'm having an MRI at the moment, but, but... it would weigh down, and as you would exhale, you wouldn't have the ability to refill your lungs. It was a form of kind of a, of a, 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 a suffocation, impossible to draw that air back into your lungs. You'd slowly suffocate under the weight, under the tribulation, under the hardship, under the philipsis of, uh, of that weight. And Paul declares that this Christian life includes the kind of hardship that is thalipsis. It's the kind of difficulty that comes into our lives that takes our breath away emotionally, uh, mentally, spiritually, physically. It has that kind of an impact uh, upon us, and so it does. And it doesn't matter how godly we are or how uh, good we might be, how much we love God, and Paul doesn't want us to be surprised when it does. I want you to notice, too, that word many. In other words, tribulation isn't something that comes into our lives once and then leaves us alone uh, hereafter. It's like, all right, I earned those stripes. I don't have to go through that camp anymore. That's it. I'm a Navy SEAL or I'm a Marine or I'm a whatever, but that's in my rearview mirror. Don't have to do that again. And, uh, and so sometimes we can think, all right, I passed that test. That spiritual lesson's been built into my life. I don't have to go any, through anything as hard as that ever again. And then we get surprised when something even harder uh, comes into our life or that harder things come into our life over and over again. And sometimes there's just that feeling, and it can be kind of a stumbling in that way. And it's not only that this thalipsis or this tribulation is frequent in 
the, 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 the frequency with which it comes into our lives, but also it is many in terms of its forms. Sometimes it can be that take your breath away in terms of spiritual warfare. You remember Paul and Barnabas and Paphos when they were resisted by Bar-Jesus as they were preaching the gospel to Sergius Paulos, and Paul dealt with it dynamically, powerfully in the spiritual realm. But this kind of spiritual warfare will occur in any life. Anyone who is actively desiring by God to be used for the expansion of the kingdom, there is going to be philipsis in the form of spiritual uh, warfare. And uh, I've always enjoyed the uh, observation of the English uh, uh, bishop who declared uh, concerning the book of Acts and the Apostle Paul in it. He said, wherever Paul went, he started a revolution. Wherever I go, they serve me tea. (laughs) And that's the truth. If you're going to be a part of the expansion of the kingdom of God, that is a revolution. That is a war. That's a war as real in the in spiritual realm as any war is in the physical realm. And there's going to be philipsis that is associated with it. Oftentimes, tribulation will assault us in the forms of lies and of slander that people are speaking about us. Paul faced that in Antioch of Pisidia and later in the other cities. And sometimes that kind of a thing is harder than any stoning, anything that a person can do to us physically, uh, the, the slander and the lies that can be uh, spoken against us. And it's a deep, deep philipsis uh, to see how easily people are willing to have their minds poisoned against us. Other times it will take the form of the threat of physical harm, as Paul faced in Iconium. Other times it won't just be the threat of of harm, it can take the form of actual physical harm, as Paul experienced here in his stoning in Lystra. Again, this was no ordinary hatred that these people had uh, for Paul. This is something that's demonic or at least unbelievably high and off the graph for a human being as they travel the kind of distances they did to, to oppose Paul. And yet, this kind of physical persecution is the portion of uh, much of the body of Christ all around the world today. Uh, you know, a great book to read. I, th- I read it early as a Christian, and I was so glad that I did. If you've never read it, you might jot down the title and be sure to read it. And it brings such helpful perspective in tribulation, and it's called uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it talks about the deep thalipsis that so many have gone through uh, in the course of church history, and, uh, and it helps us to realize we're not odd Uh, when it comes our way in the year 2016. And then sometimes the ellipsis just takes the form uh, of betrayal. And it's just the fickleness of people, people that you have done nothing but good for, as Paul had done there in the city of Lystra, and yet they turned on him and wanted him dead. But I want you to notice that phrase as well, enter the kingdom of God. And here Paul speaks of, when he speaks of entering the kingdom of God, he's not talking about when we were born again as Christians and we entered into the kingdom of God by virtue of that spiritual birth. Here he is talking about actually entering into the one day the absolute reality and glory of heaven at the end of this life. And it is important to be continually reminded that Yes, while there are times on this path, and sometimes it can be almost without interruption, that life for us as Christians can be very, very difficult. But to remember that this is the path that ends in heaven, and it is the only path that ends in heaven. In this regard, I always think of the Apostle Peter 
in his exchange with Jesus in John chapter 6, where Jesus has these gigantic crowds now following him who wouldn't follow him. He's feeding people to the gluttony level, the glut level of with fishes and loaves, and they begin to follow him, not because it's a sincere following or something spiritual has happened in their life. He's like a walking vending machine. This guy will keep us fed, and so they're following him. And Jesus gets up on that scene before that crowd, and he begins to speak to them in very strong terms about what would be required in order to be his disciple and to follow him. And as Jesus teaches them, that crowd begins to melt away in his presence until I don't know how many people were left, but Jesus is standing there, and he's standing with the disciples, and he turns, and again to me what is one of the most vulnerable scenes on the part of God in all of the Bible, and he speaks to the disciples, and he says to them, will you leave also? Will you depart from me also? This is the condition of discipleship. This is the life I am living. This is the life that I'm calling you to to live. This is what it's going to pan out to be. I can't sugarcoat it. I can't make it into something else. This is what it is. Will you leave me also? And Paul, Peter rather responded, and he responded on behalf of all of the disciples when he declared to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of everlasting life. And it tells me that Peter thought about it. He had thought it through. And as as his mind ransacked the universe for something superior to following Jesus in this life, he could not find it. Difficulties and all. He couldn't think of anything. And Paul agreed as he would later write, speaking of the importance of an eternal perspective in times of trial, when our faith is being severely tested, he said, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And that word reckon means to weigh in the balance. And Paul says you can take all of the suffering that is in this life and put it on one side of that scale and then take the glory that awaits us in heaven, put it on the other side of the scale, and the suffering isn't worthy to be even spoken of or to be compared with the glory that awaits us. And remember, Paul knew suffering. Paul knew suffering. But Paul had also been given by God a vision of the glory of heaven. And he said the beauty of it, the majesty of it, the perfection of it, He said, it's so great that he said, if I tried to explain it to you, I would do a disservice. And so he never attempted to do so. But he gives us hints at all we really need to know. We don't need our own vision. All we need to know is that whatever the difficulties are in our life, cumulatively into our life today, to put them on one side of the scale, that it doesn't compare with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And to look at the difficulties that we face in life as Christians. And very important not to compare ourselves among ourselves. But as we find ourselves in those places, to look at it and realize, Lord, this must be something. This is hard for me. This is difficult for me. If I had, a, if I had any say-so in it, I would get out of this in a nanosecond. But somehow I accept the fact that it is my portion And somehow a part of me one day hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Now there's something within me that continually drifts back to the idea that if I'm just a good person and I'm just a nice person as a Christian, that my life will then be relatively calm and peaceful as a result And that when difficult things then happen in my life, when I'm living a good life, trying to, and being in a pretty dominant level, being a nice person, that when Philipsis comes into my life, that it must mean that I'm doing something wrong or that God is upset with me. 
And that's my default position. That's where I automatically go. And I don't think I'm alone in that. But the problem with my default position is that it ignores the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And that it ignores 2,000 years of church history and the price that God's people have paid this side of heaven for the advancement of the glory. And most important of all, it ignores the life and the ministry of Jesus himself, who is the very definition of Christianity and the very definition of the Christian life. And Jesus taught, a disciple is not above his his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Belzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? In verse 22, it reminds us of a fundamental truth concerning Christianity that is largely lost today. But it is vital for us to understand and to allow to shape our expectations concerning our Christian life so that it can keep us safe in seasons of tribulation, of philipsis. But that's not why I have made verse 22 the focus of our Bible study this morning. I've done that because I believe God wants to use verse 22, to speak to some of us this morning. Is that you in the privacy of your heart this morning? The thalipsis that you're under. And it's so great. You are being severely tempted to quit following Jesus and to quit following giving yourself completely and fully to his call upon your life as a Christian. You just want out of the hardship. You just want out of the philipsis. And whatever it takes to escape that, you're willing to do. And no one would know that to look at you this morning in this room, but that's where you are. And I just ask that you allow the passage to speak to you this morning. And to let the passage strengthen your soul in the sense that you realize that in all that you're in the middle of, that you are not an oddity, that there is not something wrong with you because of the hardship you face in your life. And you are not alone in that hardship even though it feels like it and the passage then speaks to you and to me to continue in the faith continue in the faith continue in the faith and maybe you came into this room this morning asking for a word from God in the middle of what you're facing And that's his word to you this morning. Continue in the faith and then realize that we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of heaven. And finally, I want you to know that the God who has called you into this Christian life, he has a firmer grip on you than you will ever know. And he will one day personally deliver you into the glory of heaven itself. You are going to make it there. And Jesus, who has trod this path before us, declared, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me, and I give them everlasting life, and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one, and the idea is they are one in their determination related to this, 
related to your life and my life. Paul, who has trodden the path of Philipsis before us, wrote, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. And Jude, as he concludes his letter, declared, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, but not just that, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, thank you for the whole counsel of your word. Thank you for the perfection of your word, the balance of everything that is in it, the necessity of all of it in order to form us and to fashion us as Christians and in order to help us to navigate the life that we find ourselves in as you are preparing us for the heaven that awaits us. And I pray, and we pray for one another this morning, that you would use our time in the Word this morning to bring perspective and to bring comfort and to bring hope, Lord, into each of our lives. We pray, Lord, for those that are in the middle of Philipsis today, that it would accomplish just that. We pray, Lord, for those that stand before you for whom this is just a... Well, it's something they can't relate to yet, but one day they will. And Lord, we pray that you would tuck this away in a sure place in their heart, at least verse 22, to bring it to their remembrance and the day that they will need it. Thank you, Lord, this morning for the privilege of living this Christian life for all of the hardship and difficulty and sacrifice that can be involved in it. We thank you, Lord, for all of the blessings that so exceed even all of that and the greatest blessing of all of knowing you and walking with you and being the object, Lord, of your love and of your work. We bless you, Father, this morning, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.